Well, it would be good, I think, if we began our time together with prayer. And so I'd like to pause and ask God's help as we begin our second session. So let's pray. Well, Father, how we long for this time together not to be spent in vain. It's a frightening thing to hear the Lord Jesus say, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Just repeating the traditions of men. And so we would ask you to come and prevent us from vanity and emptiness and fruitlessness or even faithlessness. And we cherish the promise that you'll be with us now. Indeed, we love adding that great promise, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, make disciples and I'll be with you to the end of the age. So sandwiched between those two great words, all authority is yours and I'll be with you. We do our work. Fill me with truth and biblical balance, I pray, and grant ears to hear eyes to see your glory, hearts that are receptive and docile, discernment, Lord, so that anything amiss would be dropped away and everything that's true would be carried away with great effect. I ask, Lord, that you would protect us from the evil one here who is the destroyer of life, a murderer from the beginning a liar and a deceiver, a distorter of everything, a ruiner of the body. And so in our weakness, we look away from ourselves to the mighty Christ and ask that you would protect us, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from this evil one. We cloak ourselves now not with any merit or value of our own, but with the righteousness of Christ and with his shed blood. And we cherish the security that there is in him. Surround this building with your care and may the angel of the Lord encamp here because we fear you and not man. And may the ripple effect of our time together here, Lord, be for the nations of the world, especially those without any gospel witness at all. Raise up in this group those with a passion for your supremacy among the unreached peoples of the world. And may the ripple effect go from the north to the south of Great Britain and beyond. And may it be a ripple effect that lasts for decades. Indeed, if you tarry a hundred years from now, may someone remember what happened here today. Because it made such a huge difference in transformed lives we're bold to pray that, Lord, not because we have anything but five loaves and two fish, but because we remember what you did with them. And you can do it again in ways we can't even dream. Those apostles never dreamed that they would feed 5,000. And they never dreamed that there would be 12 basketfuls left for them. And so I pray that you would come. And do far more than I could even dream to ask here in this moment or anyone has ever yet thought. 
for the glory of your name and for the joy of our souls. Through Christ I pray. Amen. Well, what I'm doing is beginning with three impulses that uh, have flowed into my reflection on living by faith in future grace that help account for where it came from and are in the process of defining what it is. And the first impulse was a passion for the supremacy of God or sharing in God's passion for God, a love for the glory of God above all things. Now, the second passion is a passion for joy. And it's the relationship between the two that we'll get to in a minute that has shaped my life and what I've written and what I speak. Because I can remember back at, in college days, not understanding some of the things I understand now and feeling inside that the desire to be happy is a defect. And this is very prevalent in the world and in the church, especially if anybody comes along and says, if you let that desire to be happy be the motive, they see you people, um, be the motive for any good act, you contaminate the act by that motive. It's a defective motive, which left me really perplexed as to why I should do what I do. It left me with a kind of duty religion that you try to pump up out of some kind of self-abandonment that didn't want to be happy in what you were doing, and it didn't make any sense. It didn't work. And yet, I think I had just absorbed from the air that we breathe in evangelicalism, and it's not just evangelicalism, it's is Christianity for the last 200 years since Immanuel Kant that if you don't do what you do just because it's right to do it with no thought of any blessing or any improvement or any advantage or any joy that might come in. And if you don't do right things because they're right, then you contaminate the virtue of the act. I had absorbed that. And yet I could not deny, though I tried, that I wanted to be happy all the time. I wanted to pursue joy. It was just, it was like hunger. You don't plan to get hungry at five or six or seven o'clock in the evening. You don't choose to get hungry. And I wasn't choosing to want to be happy. It was just the way I was wired, it seemed. And so this particular ethic that seemed to be out there that said to the degree that you're driven like that, you contaminate worship, you contaminate love, you contaminate mission, you contaminate ministry, buck up, find another motive and be about it. And it looked like everybody was trying to do that way, which is why worship was pretty pitiful and love was pretty half-hearted. So that set me on a journey to try to figure this out, whether or not a passion for joy is something that you ought to pursue and cultivate. Well, I, I won't 
That's what I wrote Desiring God about, and the story is there. And and I think I'll just jump over a lot of steps in 1968, 69, 70 to the Bible and read you texts, several texts, that caused me to say somebody's not reading their Bible here or somebody's not understanding their Bible the way it looks like it should be understood. For example, Psalm 100 Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Serve the Lord with gladness. Sounds like a command to me. It it began to, the, the authority of scripture started to work. We evangelicals say we believe in the authority of scripture, but we... Serve the Lord with gladness. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Don't kill. Serve the Lord with gladness. It's a command. And yet it hadn't registered as a command for years. But in fact, a danger. Give me a little background. i got to be careful here that I don't name names because you'd know this person. Um, We were supposed to, once upon a time, do some work together somewhere. And... Uh, I was charged with naming the ministry, that is, this, this, this conference we were going to do, or seminar, together. And I named it something like uh, The Pursuit of Joy. And, uh, and then we had to write a paragraph for the blurb they were supposed to produce. And, and, and I said that we will try to unpack the mission statement about uh, we exalt the supremacy of God in everything for the joy of all peoples, and so everybody should get together in this passion for joy. And this other evangelical leader, uh, who I love to work with, sent me a note that said, I actually uh, called and said, I, I don't think we should talk about pursuing joy. I think we should talk about pursuing obedience. And, and let joy be the byproduct. So, I'm not sure we're together on this. Now, you, I wonder how you would respond to that. Don't pursue joy, pursue obedience. And what I, what I said was, or what I've said in public over and over again, because that objection raises its head often when I talk about the pursuit of joy, is, that's like saying, Uh, Don't eat apples, eat fruit. Do you think that through? (laughs) Don't pursue joy, pursue obedience. Because obedience is doing what God tells you to do. And God tells you to pursue joy. Serve the Lord with gladness. So what's obedience of Psalm 100 verse 2? Indifference to joy? God says, here's joy in my service. I offer it to you. In fact, I tell you, do it this way. And you say, we don't do that. We don't do joy. (laughs) Joy just kind of follows us around. This. We'd do something else. And I think God would say, well, you just do what I tell you to do. 
This is not an optional thing here. I'm telling you, serve the Lord with gladness. If you don't like gladness, change your mind. <laughs> Psalm 32:11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Another command. Matthew 5:12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets. Who were before you. Now there brings in a little warning. Sometimes, you know, anytime you, you start saying things pointedly with definition that sound a little different, people will distort what you say and they'll go off and say, John oh, Piper says we should all be Christian pornographers or Christian prostitutes. That's what Christian hedonism means, isn't it? And, of course, the answer is no. <laughs> this text warns us against misunderstanding me in meaning that the call to joy is a call to joy in ease or comfort or prosperity or wealth or health. None of those is where joy comes from ultimately. This context in Matthew 5, 12 is... Blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. Rejoice in that day and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven where Christ is. So the call to joy that I'm issuing right now is not a call for you to go out of here and buy a new car. Some American giant of a car. Or Land Rover type thing, or, you know, in America today, these little Land Rover deals, purple and pink, and they're the newest thing for the wife in the suburb. Cost about, you know, $18,000 and, and, which may be cheap to you, I don't know, that, that sounds expensive to me. I've never bought a new car in my life. No, no more stupid investment than a new car in my job. <laughs> And they buy them right and left and just drive to the shopping centers in these, which 10 years ago, they wouldn't have been seen dead in. Their teenagers drove these things. Four-wheel drive and big fat wheels. And I'm not telling you to go out and buy the latest thing so that you can be happy because John Piper said happiness is the bottom line and I have to, and this is the line I hear most often, I have to get a divorce to be happy. Over and over and over, I hear the word. I just can't be happy with this spouse. And I know we're supposed to be happy. God wants me to be happy. And therefore, I'm leaving. So please, do not take what I'm saying to mean that you can do anything you want to to get happy. But, we'll stay on the line here and not be afraid of these texts. For example, Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It's a command to rejoice with those who rejoice. Or Romans 12, 8, let him who does acts of mercy do so with cheerfulness. Yes, we should do acts of mercy. Yes, we should pursue obedience and love. But not just in any old way. We should pursue joy in it. 
Jesus said, uh, it's one of the few quotes of Jesus outside the Gospels in Matthew 20, verse 35, where Paul is concluding his address to the elders on the beach at Miletus. He's trying to motivate them to care for the weak and to toil in order to serve the church. And then he adds this motivational sentence. Remembering the words of the Lord, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, if Immanuel Kant and all the successors who say that the pursuit of joy contaminates love and virtue are right, Jesus or Paul got one word wrong there. One word. The word remembering. Labor for the weak, care for your church, undertake it in any hardship, get up in the middle of the night if you have to, leave the children during playtime and go to the suicide threat. Remembering the word of the Lord, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. He should have said, Forgetting if remembering it contaminates the act. <laughs> Got it? If, if keeping it in your head that this is blessed, this is blessed, this is blessed. I don't want to, but I should want to. And he gives me this promise that there's blessing at the hospital when I go. And I let that feed my soul and say there's blessing in loving people. There's blessing in serving people. There's blessing in getting up at the middle of the night. Jesus or Paul says, remember that. Remember that. Keep that in your head. And if it contaminates motivation, he shouldn't have said that. He should have said, it's true, but forget it. It's got to be an unintended result, kind of following like a wake in the boat. So don't think about the blessing that comes. Don't think about that. Have you ever heard anybody talk like that? I did a PhD in Munich on love your enemies. I read gobs of ethical stuff. And most of it, I don't know if that's true. Lots of it. Lots of it was of this stuff. All rewards or all joy or all blessedness is an unintended result from doing your duty because it's your duty. And all you have to do is read the Bible to know that's not true. That's philosophically born, not exegetically born. And I have found that one of the differences between me and theological controversies around is that I tend to be very exegetically driven, not very philosophically driven. So if somebody tells me, say on some big issue like sovereignty and free will, well, philosophically, that just can't be. I say, well, maybe that's what you say, but this verse says this. And that's where I stand. And you let the Bible transform philosophy. You don't take philosophy and squish it down onto the Bible because philosophy... And I believe in Christian philosophers. I had, I was a minor in philosophy in college and loved Stuart Hackett. Oh, 
He taught me so much. I owe him so much because of the razor's edge that he taught me how to hear illogic. He taught me how to hear things in philosophical arguments that just like were a knife that go shoot right to the middle and you just peel it away and you see what all the mumbo jumbo was about. And, and so a counter philosophy that builds a Christian worldview is a, a wonderful thing. But philosophy is the best man can do with his brain assessing the world. And we're fallen, and we desperately need special revelation to set us straight again and again. So on this issue, I'll just keep reading the Bible, like 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Love rejoices in the truth. Love rejoices. You don't choose between love and joy. Love rejoices in the truth. That's what love does. Love is happy when truth holds sway. And therefore, it pursues that happiness in the holding sway of truth. Philippians 3, 1. In fact, the whole book of Philippians is, is riddled with joy. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write these same things again is no trouble to me and it's safeguard for you. Chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always again, I will say rejoice. And when he was about to die, I remember in chapter 1, he thought he was going to die anyway. He said, but I suppose I will remain behind for your, and the old authorized version says, for your advancement and joy of faith. That's why I'm staying on earth. That's the apostolic mission. For your advancement and joy. That's why I'm here. And how that mission, namely your joy, relates to the other mission, the supremacy of God, is what we'll, we're about here in these few minutes. You remember Second uh, Corinthians one twenty four. If, if you leaders want a, a paradigm for how to work and how to labor for your people, take Second Corinthians one twenty four as a possible model, where Paul says, "Not that we lord it over your faith." Woe to the church that has a leader who lords it over their faith. Then what did he give as the alternative to lording it over their faith? He said, not that we lord it over your faith, but we literally are workers with you for your joy. Now, there's an apostolic mission. We are workers with you. For your joy. I'm a Calvinist. I'm a seven-point Calvinist. And we Calvinists have a reputation of taking joy from churches. <laughs> Just let us get a church. And we'll get their doctrine straight and all their joy goes right out the window. Bad reputation. Isn't the way Paul was. He was a Calvinist. <laughs> don't, want to pull, don't want to pull rank on anybody there. It isn't the way it has to be. So at my church, I just tell them flat out, just like I tell you flat out, I exist for your joy. Just like Paul said, for your advancement and joy of faith. I'm staying on the planet. First Thessalonians 
Rejoice always. Always. Wow. Wow. First Peter 4.13 But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Now there's an odd correlation. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Just You think just the opposite. To the degree that you're spared suffering, keep on rejoicing, right? That's the American way. To the degree that you can move out of the city of pain into the suburb of pleasure, keep on rejoicing. And Christianity is an upside-down religion. It's to the degree that you can move into need and move into sharing the sufferings of Christ that you should keep on rejoicing. So that, keeping on in that verse, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Now, to stop and ponder that verse is really interesting because it said, now, so that you will be able to rejoice when he comes. There is a correlation to whether the kingdom has broken in upon us, transformed us, at least a measure, so that joy is now in Jesus, which is the pathway that will lead to the final great exaltation when he comes. Maybe that's enough text. That's not all of them. There's dozens and dozens of such texts in the Bible that call for us and indeed command us to rejoice. Now, here's the question. We've got two passions in front of us. A passion for the supremacy of God and a passion for joy. Indeed, a biblical teaching which I hope was persuasive that God does everything that he does for his glory. And now a whole list of biblical verses that say, I ought to be about the pursuit of my joy. Hmm. I should join God in doing everything I do for the glory of God. And I am commanded to pursue my joy in all my service. Serve the Lord with gladness. Now that's where I was in 1968. I knew this was here. I grew up in that house. My dad's also probably the happiest man I've ever known. And in college, they were like oil and water. They were like oil and water. They did not fit. Nobody had articulated for me how they fit. And it was just my longing to be happy and God's passion for his glory did Seemed to fit. And then along came Jonathan Edwards. Along came C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory, which I commend to you. And now I see how they fit. And I have found various ways to say it. Some of them rhyme, even. Songwriters in our church write about them. And... Uh, the rhyming one goes like this. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him, which means you don't have to choose between being satisfied and glorifying God. In fact, if you try to choose between them, you fail in both of them. You must pursue God's glory 
Now, here's the second way I say it. I, I take the Westminster Catechism and the first question, what is man's chief end? And the answer is, in the traditional version, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's close. Real close. And so I ask the Westminster divines, what did you mean, and? Sometimes you do one, and sometimes you do the other. Is there something more interconnected between these two things? You did say chief end, not ends. Why did you say chief end and then give me two answers? What's going on here? This sounds like good news. Well, I wish I had some of them here. Wasn't Rutherford one of those guys? Um, I don't know if he was or not. Uh, but he has some letters that get at it. The word I put in the place of and is by. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And that's the sum of everything I try to say everywhere I go. That my passion and God's passion for the supremacy of God and my passion to be satisfied are not two separate passions. This is the best news in all the world to me. That God's zeal for his glory and my zeal for my joy are the same zeal. And I didn't make this up. John Piper did not make this up. I got this straight out of Jonathan Edwards and then spent enough time reading my Bible that I can now find it all over the Bible. I'm just dressing it up for 20th century. I'm a 20th century Puritan. That's all I am. And I think the Puritans got it right. They were a joyful lot. The secret jewel of Christian contentment or the rare jewel of Christian contentment, Jeremiah Burroughs. Well, who would ever, I mean, that sounds like Christian hedonism to me. The rare jewel, the most precious thing, contentment. I wonder if he got whipped around like I do for this terminology, which is okay, I like that. It jars people and they wake up and they have to ask, hmm, Christian hedonism. I think that's the way you say it, right? Hedonism. Um, that does not sound good. <laughs> Wonder what's behind that. And then you dig and you dig and you discover there might be something behind that that changes your life, that you've been so scared of all your life that you've never embraced it. Let me show you one of the places in the Bible where I've seen it. Because if, if, if you need, and you should need, exegetical support for something like God is most glorified in you and you are most satisfied in him. Why don't you take your Bible and go with me to Philippians chapter one, just to we'll take one glimpse. This is one of the texts we could use to show the relationship between a passion for God's glory and a passion for joy. Philippians one. And maybe um, verses 19 to 21. 
Paul's in prison in Rome, probably. We know he's in prison. Very likely Rome. Yes, and I shall rejoice. So he's a good model of his own teaching. Practices what he preaches. Yes, and I shall rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance or my salvation. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I shall not at all be shamed or put to shame, but that with full courage now as always, Christ might be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Right, now, let's just stop there before we read verse 21 to see what his goal is. He says his his passion. That is it through his body. Whether he lives or whether he dies, this one thing would happen. Christ would be magnified. I don't know whether your version has magnified or honored or glorified. What, what's the most common word out there? Exalted. Okay, that's fine. That's a good word. Exalted. Christ would be exalted or magnified. Now, does he give us any clue as to how that might happen? How in his living Christ would be exalted or magnified and possibly in his dying Christ would be exalted. That's our first passion. Passion for the glory of God. How, how would that happen? Now let's read verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now notice the correlation between the two words life and death at the end of verse 20 and live and die in verse 21. So you know verse 21 is somehow explaining or grounding or filling out, supplying something that needs to be interpreted from that life and death in verse 20. There's a correlation. Life in verse 20 corresponds to live in verse 21. Death in verse 20 corresponds to die in verse 21. Now, I think what he's doing is giving the ground or the explanation for how it is that Christ would be exalted or magnified in his death and in his life. So let's take those one at a time. Let's take the death pair, because that's the most obvious one. He says, my, my longing and my desire is that Christ would be exalted and magnified by my death for to me to die is gain. So I'm peeling off the life pair and just giving you the death pair. I want Christ to be magnified in my dying for here's how, here's the explanation, here's the ground for how such a thing can happen. For to me to die is gain. Hmm. Hmm. So Christ is exalted in my dying when my dying is counted as gain. Why? Why is death gain for Paul? The answer is verse 23. I am hard pressed between the two, that is living or dying, whether my, des my desire is to depart, that is in death, and be with Christ. For that is far better. That's gain. 
So the reason death is gain in verse 21 is because death brings you into a greater intimacy with Christ. Remember he said in 2 Corinthians 5, to be at home in the body is to be apart from the Lord. Even though the Spirit is here and we have a wonderful fellowship with the Lord here in this life, for Paul to be in the body was in a profound sense to be apart from the Lord. Oh, he could, he, he knew there was so much more of Christ to be had one day. And to be apart from the body, verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 5, is to be at home with the Lord. That's why it's gain. Now let's go back and figure out the logic here. My desire is for Christ to be exalted when I die. I want him to be exalted and magnified in my death. The way that will happen is when my death is felt by me and known by me and experienced by me as gain because I get more of Christ. Which to me translates like this. Christ is most magnified in my dying when I am most satisfied with him in my dying. Because what he's really saying is, when you die, in order to count dying gain, in order to get me, you have to cherish me, treasure me, prize me more than everything this life can offer you. Children, wife, job, health, sex, career, retirement, reputation, in a moment, it's gone. And you have to be able to say, gain. And if you can say gain to Christ over all that, if he's that precious, that satisfying, that delightful, he is magnified in your dying. Do you see that? That cherishing him and delighting in him and resting in him and being content in him and being satisfied by him so much at the hour of death that everything falls away and you count it gain to die magnifies him like nothing else. This is my uh, 30th year of marriage. And December 21st is... Um, our anniversary. And Noel's not here, so I'll give this illustration. Maybe I'll actually do it. Um, suppose I come home with a 30 long stem red roses behind my back. Cost me a mint <laughs> to buy them. And, and I ring the doorbell, which I wouldn't ordinarily do. And so she comes to the door and looks puzzled. And she says, and I pull out the rose and say, happy anniversary, Noel. And she says, oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? And I say, it's my duty. <laughs> now, every time I tell this story, anywhere in the world, people laugh at duty. Why do you laugh at duty? <laughs> duty is a great thing. 
Something wrong with that answer. That's not a good answer. <laughs> Let's replay the tape and do the right answer. Ding dong. Happy anniversary, Noel. Oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? I couldn't help myself. <laughs> I just, I just love buying you roses. In fact, I've got a babysitter for tonight. Why don't you go change clothes? Because I've got a plan because there's nothing I'd rather do tonight than spend it with you. That's a good answer. Isn't that a good answer? <laughs> Not in a million years would she ever say back to me, nothing you'd rather do. You Christian hedonist, why don't you think about me sometime? <laughs> You better believe what you're laughing, because this is a massive indictment of a duty worship and a duty religion here, because what I've just portrayed for you is God on Sunday morning looking down at his people saying, why'd you come here? And, and his people saying, we're Christians, this is Sunday. This is what you do on Sunday. This is our duty. We do this. The Bible says, keep it holy. So we don't go to the football match. We come here. That's not a good answer. God doesn't like that answer. And the reason he doesn't like it, and the reason my wife would not like it, is because it doesn't honor them as precious, beautiful, and delightful, and worthy. The answer on Sunday morning when God says, why are you here, is there's no other place that would make me happier than to be with you. Now, that's Christian hedonism through and through. And it is highly honoring to God. So if you get this, then you will understand why I say God's passion for his glory and my passion for my joy are no longer in my mind or in my heart at odds. They are one. God is most glorified in me when and in I am most satisfied in him. I don't choose between these anymore. I have learned that if I would magnify Christ in my dying then I must count dying, that is, getting him, as gain. I must feel it as gain. So my pursuit of my gain, my gain, gives him glory. And now we're back to Acts 17.25 and 1 Peter 4.11. The giver gets the glory. The gospel, the good news, is that I don't have to muster up all my energy is to make sure I improve upon God by my moral efforts in order to enjoy Him. He says, just open your hands. Open your life. Or like the psalm says, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. It's when you're closing your mouth, chewing your own cud, 
that you don't get anything. Now, I shut my Bible thinking maybe I shouldn't take the time to work on the life half. But in a nutshell, when it says, I want Christ to be magnified in my life for to me to live as Christ, to live as Christ. What does that phrase mean? Live as Christ, live as Christ, live as Christ. The best exposition of that is chapter three, verse eight. I count everything as loss. For the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That happens now. So in a sense, the Christian life is doing death now. With all that joy. Doing death now. We do death. Christians do death. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and keeps lavishing these things on me from hour to hour to give me strength to suffer if I must. So the way you glorify God in your life is by so delighting in him and so being satisfied by him that everything is like rubbish by comparison. Rubbish, that's Paul's word. Count everything as loss, everything is rubbish for the surpassing value of Christ, surpassing value we're not talking mega sacrifice here. All the, all the Christians I have ever read who have suffered most have come to the ends of their life and said things like, I never made a sacrifice. David Livingston, Hudson Taylor, Amy Carmichael, Mary Slessor. That's the language they talk. Suffering saints who've walked with Jesus deeply and profoundly for a long time come to the ends of their lives and say, I never made a sacrifice. Samuel Zwamer, 50 years later, after he had gone to, was it Oman or Bahrain or I forget, Emirates, whatever it was, back in 1905, and in one week he loses both of his children, little children, a seven and a five-year-old, I believe. It was 170 degrees in the shade every day. He endured, he ministered, hardly any converts. He became the professor of missions at Princeton, and at the end of his life, he wrote his memoirs and he said, looking back over the whole, I would do it again a thousand times. God was so precious and the joys were so great. The people that have suffered most and have been driven into God out of this crummy substitute that the world offers us with all of its pleasures and all of its comforts, driven out of that by cancer, driven out by arthritis, Driven out by persecution, into God, discovering the depths of God. Those are the people that talk like Christian hedonists most. So when people have complained to me, and I remember one professor, and he was a, an Englishman. I shouldn't, I shouldn't even, because you would know his name too probably, in my seminary. He and I just, we were hitting heads all the time because evidently the British have a pedagogy that us Americans don't get along with very well. The pedagogy was... Let's give about seven options on views and then leave. Now you think it through and pick one. I grab him almost. I say, what do you think? So what? I was a so what guy. I really made life hard for him because he wasn't used to mouthy Americans like I am speaking in a lecture. Lecturers lecture, students listen. Ah, it was up like this. I don't want to know seven options. I want to know your heart. 
That did not go over well. And one of my papers was on First Peter, suffering in First Peter. And I argued the little bit I could understand in those days about chapter 1 where it says, Rejoice when your faith is tried like gold because it's going to redound being more precious than gold, it's going to redound unto praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. And so in your sufferings rejoice. And I wrote, I wrote my paper. I thought it was okay. He gave it a C plus, I think, and erased it and gave it a B minus, I think, to make me feel like he was gracious. <laughs> and, and I went up to talk to him. I said, what, what was wrong with my paper? And he said, I, I think you're naive. I don't, I don't think people who've suffered would ever talk like that or believe what you're trying to. I think you're, you're a, you know, a 23 year old American who's never had any problems and, and if you knew people who suffered, you wouldn't so glibly write about joy and suffering. I said, ooh, okay. And I, I, I have not known suffering. I mean, a little bit, but not much. And so I always try to let other people talk for me, these missionaries. So I went off to the library. Oh, oh, he closed that talk by saying, would, would Richard Vermbrandt write a paper like this? <laughs> now, Richard Vermbrandt, some of you obviously know who he is, a Romanian pastor who 14 years in prison tortured so badly that when he speaks now, he sits down, takes off his shoes because his feet were beaten and uh, very godly. Deep man, we had him at our church one time. Would, would Richard Vermeer write a paper like this? So I was—I didn't know who Richard Vermeer was in 1968 and I went off to the library and got uh, his book on it's the most basic one in prison. Soldier for Christ, yeah. Okay, and I—I I began to read it, and I found quotes all over the place <laughs> about joy and how God met him. And how God was more real to him at certain points of awful suffering. Not to minimize it. Not to minimize it. And I went back to my professor and says, look. <laughs> he would. He would have. He didn't change my grade, though. <laughs> so, we glorify God or we magnify God in our lives right now. By counting everything as loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And that means not just head knowledge, but a, a sweet, warm, fellowshipping kind of knowing. And that is so good and so satisfying that everything else should fall away like fleeting pleasures of Egypt, Moses said. So that's the end of uh, passion number two. Passion one, a passion for the supremacy of God. Passion two, a passion for joy in God. And the end of those two, that these are not contradictory, they're not at odds, but rather we glorify God by enjoying him, like you glorify God by telling your wife, I'm here because it makes me happy to be here, not I'm here because I read the book on marriage or the book on worship. But because my heart delights in you, my delight, your glory, God. Impulse 
Or passion number three. A passion for holiness. Now here we come to the question that was asked right in this vicinity here. Yeah, green shirt there. Um, about the role of, of uh, security and so on. And this is moving real close to the heart of, of the book Future Grace. One of the reasons the passion for holiness is so high is because the Bible teaches, I believe, that without it, you won't get to heaven. No holiness, no heaven. So let me, just like I did with the first two passions, walk through scriptures with you to show you where I'm getting this and why I commend it to you, not from me, but from the word. It says in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 4, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification or your holiness. Students come to me sometimes and, and they'll say, I'm trying to find the will of God for my life. Can you help me? I said, I already know the will of God for your life. Oh, really? Tell me. Holiness. It's right here in the Bible. This is the will of God for you, your holiness. They'll say, oh, yeah, I know that. But I mean marriage and job and school and place to live and so on. I say, look, you pass over it too quickly. You get up in the morning and want to be holy as much as you want to be married? Do you get up in the morning and want to be holy as much as you want a good job? Do you get up in the morning and want to be holy as much as you want to be accepted at university? Get a scholarship? And then they realize that what God has already revealed about his will for them is kind of just stuck in their back pocket as something, oh yeah, that's one of the dangers in the charismatic side of things is that what God has already said, we just got to stick it in our back pocket. Now, tell us something else. Give something new. I'll tell you, if, if your life is driven by the new stuff and not the old stuff, you're going haywire. You're going to go haywire. It's the old stuff that's the most precious. God can do new things. He can do anything he wants to do. But when God says the will of God for you is your holiness and your sanctification, that's a mega agenda. That's a passion worth getting up for and all day long thinking about and praying about. So let's dwell on this and see what role it has. Uh, Hebrews twelve fourteen. Pursue peace with all men. And the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, I believe that text teaches, and I know we could spend 10 or 15 minutes over every one of these texts, looking carefully at the context and taking the pieces apart and putting them back together. But I'm, I'm just going to commend them to you and tell you what I, I believe they mean. And then you've got to go test it as good Bereans to see if I'm right about that through your own study and reflection and prayer. I believe this verse teaches that there is a holiness without which no one will get to heaven. Pursue peace with all men and a holiness or a sanctification without which no one will even see the Lord. 
John 5.28. Do not marvel at this, Jesus says, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So the contrast there is between judgment and life, hell and heaven, eternal death and eternal life, and the difference is your deeds. Now, I'm going to spend another 15 minutes or so making this problem worse before I move toward the solution. The problem, of course, is justification by faith alone and assurance. Those are the big problems. So we're coming back. But you got to get the data on the table so that you know what you're working with before you begin to solve problems in ways that the Bible will not allow. There are people solving this problem today in ways that these verses won't allow. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God. Nobody else will be called a son of God. Peacemakers. Uh, Matthew 5, 27 to 30, just paraphrasing, you know, when it says... uh, Um, If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, for it's better to go into life maimed than with two hands to go to the hell of fire. And if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, for it's better to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to go to hell. So the issue is lust. This is scary. Right? This is scary. It's all over the Bible, too. Not, so we'll keep going. Galatians 6, 8. For the one who sows to his flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap the opposite of corruption, eternal life. So corruption is balanced with eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap, namely life instead of corruption, if we do not grow weary in doing good. So again, doing good is the criterion at the judgment in who goes to eternal life and who goes to corruption. 1 Corinthians 16.22. This one amazes me. I heard a Reformed pastor, very well-known one in America, preach through, he came to the end of preaching through 1 Corinthians, and he came to the end, and I was there at his church for the last sermon on 1 Corinthians, and I was frankly appalled that he passed over this verse with barely a quip. Because to me, this verse, verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 16, is one of the most devastating and frightening verses in the Bible. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Now, 
I'll just pose the problem here for you, and then we're coming back in a little while, maybe tonight, we'll see, um, to solve it if we can. The problem is, if we are justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law, how can Paul say something like this? He who does not love, it does not say believe in, it says love the Lord, let him be anathema. There's no way to whitewash that word anathema. It means cursed, cut off from Christ according to Romans 9.3. My kinsmen, my Jews, according to the flesh, are anathema. They are cut off from Christ. Pharisees are perishing. There must be some kind of relationship. I'm tipping my hand here a little bit. There must be a relationship between the love of Christ and believing in Christ that enabled Paul, without contradiction of any kind, to say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, and to say, if you don't love Jesus, you're damned. No contradiction here. James 2.17 Even so, if it has no works, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Faith is dead if it has no works. So works, holiness, love, matter. First John, every other verse in the book, almost, but let's just take two or three of them. First John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What's the criterion for being cleansed of all sin? Tell me. Walking in the light. Walking in the light. Walking in the light. If we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If the blood of Jesus doesn't cleanse you from all sin, you're lost. One sin uncleansed and you're lost. Therefore, walking in the light is necessary to get to heaven. And I'll stick in now just to make sure I don't raise the tension in this room too high. The context immediately implies that does not mean perfectionism. Because verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins. That's back to back verses. You got to walk in the light to experience the cleansing blood of Jesus, and nobody is perfect. Everybody sins every day. The difference between walking in the light and not walking in the light is when you're in the light, you see the dark and hate it and repent of it and fight it every day. I sin every day, I sin every hour if the command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind means everything within me. I fall short of that every hour. I have to have blood on me every hour. So we're not talking perfectionism here. Nothing like it. 
Nothing like it. First John, um, maybe 3.14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. That's Johannin vocabulary for the new birth. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. First John 2, 4. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. You don't know God if you don't keep his commandments. You don't know God. Second Thessalonians 2, 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren. Beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. He has chosen you for salvation through sanctification. And there is no other path. Salvation through sanctification. If you try to get off the path, they lead not to salvation, but damnation. Romans 8.13. I remember I, I did a course with Daniel Fuller 25 plus years ago on Romans. Probably one of the most, maybe the most important course I ever took in my life. Romans is like that. I'm going to start preaching on Romans next Sunday. Pray for me. I'm scared to death to preach on Romans. It is so big. It is so huge. Every problem is touched on in Romans. Everything is so weighty in Romans. It's just, I feel like there's this mountain in front of me now. And I've, I'm 52 years old and I've got 13 years to go. Maybe, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. We'll see if they'll let me go beyond 65. And I'm taking up Romans, finally, after 18 years. And it feels awesome to me. Just awesome. Because when I was studying it, it was verses like chapter 8, verse 13, that just shook me to the foundations of my being. If you are living according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And in the context, it's very clear. We're talking live eternally. We must, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. We must be fighters. We must be what John Owen calls those who mortify sin in our bodies. John Owen's books are powerful helpers. They rescued J.I. Packer from suicide back in the late 40s, when people were preaching a perfectionistic gospel to him, and he could not understand the sin of his own life. And he finally found somebody who understood the dynamic of these things that we're talking about. John Owen is a good guy. Use John Owen's book on the mortification of sin. Well, maybe that's enough texts. Let me pose the, the problem here, and then I think I'm going to Stop and see if there are questions from 
And probably, if you ask questions on this one, I'll just say wait till tonight. But we'll see. I, I might. We'll see what kind of questions you have. But be thinking. Let me let me crystallize the the issue for you. This is really getting very close to the nub of the matter in living by faith in future grace and why I wrote the book and why I give the talks. A passion for holiness. How can I live a life that will have the holiness in it that satisfies these verses and thus puts me on a pathway that leads to heaven and not contradict historic Protestant Reformed teaching that justification is by faith alone, apart from works of the law, and those who are justified are are glorified. That's my answer to your question. That's why I believe in eternal security. Romans 8.30. Those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. It's as good as done for everybody who's justified. Now, the Westminster Confession, chapter 11, great historic reformed confession, which I hope you study and love. Not all of it. (laughs) Since I'm a Baptist, (laughs) can't love all of it or I'd change churches, which I have not yet felt compelled to do. But it's a great, great confession. Everybody should read it, study it. And in chapter 11, it takes up this issue of faith and works and how they're related. So let me read the key paragraph. It's chapter 11, paragraph 1 and 2, parts of each. Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth. The word freely there is very important. Not by infusing righteousness into them, that's anti-Catholic, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. All right, that's paragraph one in chapter 11. Here's paragraph two. Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument, the only instrument of justification. Hence, faith alone. Yet, is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is not dead faith, but worketh by love. Now that's the Westminster answer. The Westminster answer to these texts that I've just quoted and the doctrine of justification by faith alone is to say that It is faith alone which justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. That's Calvin. Calvin said that almost in those very words. I don't have the quote down here. But the faith that justifies is never alone, but is always accompanied by 
other saving graces like love and obedience and holiness or walking in the light or however these verses describe it, and worketh by love. That's a quote from Galatians 5, 6. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail, but faith working through love avails everything. Faith which works through love avails everything. Not just any old kind of faith. Now you may feel why I had to think and write about, well, what kind of faith then? My soul hangs on this. We're not playing games here. If this faith is always accompanied by these graces, it must be a very special kind of faith. Something about this faith has a power in it that I have not heard yet expounded adequately, I used to say. But you know what's inadequate about the Westminster Confession for me, and though I'm not a specialist in church history by a long shot, what seems inadequate in the way sanctification has been written about by Reformed folks especially is that I've never heard an adequate unpacking of how it is or what is it about faith that necessitates that it always be accompanied by these other graces. So that you don't, you see, I think, I think Calvin came real close to saying, and many evangelicals today say, belief is this. You do it at the beginning of your Christian life, twinkling of an eye, you're justified, and then obedience is another kind of thing. The living of the Christian life is another thing than that. That justifies, and now you do this. And that's what I'm after here. don't think that's right. I think that's really, really wrong and produces the wrong kind of striving, even if it's just striving for rewards and not just for salvation. It produces all the wrong kinds of striving if it is not that extended. And if it's that extended, then maybe that's an explanation for how that can justify and the nature of it is such that the power produces holiness. And they're not separate things. That this faith that begins your Christian life and this faith that sustains your Christian life are one and are of such a nature that holiness comes. If that's true, then I want to know what it is. And so... Um, that's what we're going to pursue tonight. What is that? In fact, we'll be unpacking that for the rest of our time together. I think that's a good place to stop. And uh, we've got 25 minutes or so. We don't need to take them. If you're tired and want to go. Um, but I'm willing to uh, stand here for another 20 minutes or so and, and see if you have questions. If you don't, we'll just go. But let's just, I'll just, boom, right there's one. Am I familiar with Michael Eaton's theology of encouragement? As of yesterday, I am. <laughs> and I stayed up late understanding what I think he's saying, which I very much disagree with. So I think you really don't care whether I'm familiar with it. You'd rather know some more, right, wouldn't you? <laughs> I think, let's do this. How many of you read... 
Theology of Encouragement by Michael Eaton. Okay. So you hear, you're, you're into the, the Fragestellung, as the Germans would say. You know what we're asking here, and you know the problem. For him, it's the problem of assurance. Massive problem in his own pilgrimage of how to have assurance. If, if those verses that I just read mean what I say they mean, he thinks I've shot assurance in the heart, not just the foot. <laughs> and if that's true, then, then um, either the Bible or I have put us in a very awkward position. I don't think it's true. I don't think it's true. But I think maybe the best way to handle that would be to let me give you the whole package tonight rather than try to interact with him. And then at the end, if, if we haven't sorted it out well enough, we'll come back and there'll be more time for questions at the end. So here, I, I, let me help those of you who haven't read the book so you know what we're talking about here. And, and those of you who've read the book, you, you nail me if I don't treat him fairly, okay? I hate putting up straw men because I am strawed a lot. Um, Michael Eaton, pastor in Nairobi, and a godly man from everybody who testifies to me, uh, wants to have a theology of encouragement, that is, a theology that gives assurance. Now, he believes that if you make holiness or walking in the light or love a condition for salvation, that is, for glorification at the end, you will ruin assurance because you never know whether you've been holy enough. And since you've got to have assurance, those texts just can't mean that there's a measure of holiness that you have to have in order to get to heaven. Rather, his solution is all those texts that relate to threats or warnings are threats or warnings that if you don't fulfill them, you will fall short of rewards. Not salvation. Is that a fair statement? Okay. Don't think exegetically you can do that with dozens of texts. I, I just, I read at least, I read for a long time. I read about four hours in it yesterday. And I'm not persuaded. It's, this is not new to me. Uh, this is, I, I, I'm, I don't know whether he's aware of the parallel in America. It's been going on for Fifteen years, say, and it's called the Lordship Controversy. And if you've seen my book, The Pleasures of God, just go straight to the back, to the appendix, where it says, Letter to a Friend. That's my answer to Michael Eaton. So is Future Grace. But um, there are many godly people, Zane Hodges, who teaches at Dallas Seminary, who have taken the same approach because they want to help people have assurance. That's what's driving them. They work with ordinary people. Now, now Michael Eaton is unusual in the sense that he's come out of a strongly reformed tradition. And as he looked over his tradition, he said, I don't even like the people I'm producing. I think that's almost a direct quote. I don't even like the people in my own church. I mean, I, that may have been two decades ago he said that. I don't know when. Uh, but in, his, in the little reformed churches that he was coming through, there was no joy. There was no assurance. There was no life. There was no power. And he said, is this? Is this the truth? And his, his path and my path didn't, I mean, I felt the same thing. I'm trying to solve the same problem. <laughs> we're on similar quests and we're answering questions in very different ways. So this is a good opportunity for you to get that book downstairs. I'm sure they're going to run out now. <laughs> um, but get it and, and, and put it, just put it beside future grace. 
Because future grace is, is, he sets up Arminianism and developed Calvinism as the two alternatives. And Arminianism makes works a ground of final salvation, and developed Calvinism makes works a proof that you're already saved. But it's so much a proof that if you can't produce the proof, you don't have any assurance that you got saved. So it's just as bad as, as Arminianism in, when it comes to assurance. And I don't, I don't want to be in, in either of those two categories. <laughs> so whatever you, whatever he would call future grace, I, I would like you to send him a copy or I'll send him a copy and, and we can maybe correspond because Terry knows him personally. In fact, how many know him personally? Raise your hand. Okay. Just tell him I like him. Okay. Like, like. Not just love. And I don't call the salvation into question, but I, I do think it's, it's uh, an unhealthy way to solve those, the problem of assurance. I think exegetically, too many texts have to be bent to make it work. But that's my opinion, and he would, if he were here, graciously, I'm sure, disagree profoundly with me. So we'll, we'll finish my effort to answer how to handle the problem, and then at the end, if we still want to put the two views side by side, we'll take it up. Let's, let's go to another question. The question is, did Ananias and Sapphira make it to heaven? And why are you still alive? <laughs> that, that put the accent in the wrong place. Why are we still alive? We are still alive because God is free to advance judgment into this life as far as he wants or postpone it as long as he wants by grace. And he just advanced judgment on them further in than he did on Peter. Could have struck Peter down when he denied him. And he didn't. Out of pure grace. And I'm alive because of pure grace. Did they go to heaven? I don't know if they went to heaven. But I'm open to the possibility, which tips you off a little bit about quest for holiness. I do not think that the last act of life is the necessary determining act of who you are in Christ. Therefore, when I preach at suicides, they're hard funerals, aren't they? Suicides are hard funerals. I've done, I don't know how many. They're horrible. I've never, ever come close to saying, because I don't believe it's biblical, if you kill somebody in your last second of life, you're going to hell. Even though the Bible says murderers won't go to heaven. For this reason, when God, and here I am getting ahead, but it's all right. Repetition never hurt anybody, I suppose. When God assesses a life in the last day, it's not going to be anything like measuring good deeds against bad deeds and putting them in a scale. Nothing like that. So it could be Muslim thing. It's, it's not going to be um, that the last act was the most important. So killing in the last act. Yourself or anybody else. Um, I mean, how many men in Second World War were blown to smithereens as they were killing others? Of course, that brings up the whole issue of a just war. Never mind. Uh, which I do believe in. I'm not a pacifist. Um, I'll get my thoughts straight here. When he looks at us, he is going to be looking at 
a sufficient evidence that faith was real. And if it's true, according to 1 John, that we all must confess our sins, and the person who says, I have no sin, is a liar, then at any given point in that sinning, you might die. And the Bible does not hold out a picture of assurance or a picture of the Christian life that says, we sin, we do righteousness, we sin, we, we do righteousness, we sin, we, and if you die here, go to hell. If you die here, go to heaven. That's, that's the furthest thing from what the Bible teaches. When we are justified, we are born again, the Spirit moves into our life, we are united with Christ that is unshakable, and what emerges in our lives is enough that God and we and some others, Jesus says you'll know them by their fruits, can discern whether there's some authenticity here. Take the thief on the cross. That'd be, maybe. Do you have any time to do holiness? Well, the answer is yes. He did. An hour. I don't know how long, I don't know how much time elapsed before they broke his legs and he gassed himself into paradise. But in that hour, in fact, in those moments, something miraculous happened and Jesus, he, he watched Jesus. Evidently, this is the way I wrote a poem about this one time and I pictured this man railing first because Luke has both of them railing at him. Railing first and then he watches this Jesus hand over his mother to John. And he watches him say, Father, forgive them. And those sayings and those acts land on him like, what? What, what is this reality I'm hanging next to? And he, he says, Jesus, is there hope for me, basically? Remember me. When you come into your kingdom, you are not like any man I've ever seen. Maybe he had had some dealings with Jesus earlier. Maybe have watched him. I don't know. But he just made an appeal. Jesus, have mercy on me. And just like this, in the last hour of his life, after a lifetime of murder and thievery, he says, today, today, we'll be in paradise. That's goodness. <laughs> to be able to say to people on death row, we kill a lot of people in America. Do you know that? We kill 10,000 people a year. <laughs> Our children kill each other. And you all wonder why we have guns. I know. And I don't know the answer to that, except it's in the Constitution, the right to bear firearms, all has to do with our history and all that stuff. But we, we slaughter each other in America. And then we have electric chairs and lethal injections and gas chambers and women are being put to death and and I personally don't oppose, in principle, capital punishment. But to be able to go to a person who's slaughtered 16 people, killed them in cold blood the night before they are executed and say, you can be saved. You can be saved. And not have any long life of holiness to live to prove anything. The holiness that the thief on the cross produced was a life of reliance on Jesus in as much as he could. He stopped cussing Jesus. That's all he did. And screamed his way into eternity with pain. So, they may be in heaven. Ananias and Sapphira may be in heaven. I don't know if they were believers. Genuine believers. There were a lot of hypocrites in the New Testament. 
They went out from us, First John 2.19, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would not have gone out, but they went out that it might be plain that they were not of us. That's one of the clearest passages on eternal security for those who are born again. If you're born again, you won't go out. Or at least you won't go out forever. You come back. I do believe in backsliding. Another question. This side. Can low self-esteem get in the way of a Christian glorifying God? Or is it a necessary precursor of glorifying God? Now, in order to answer that, I have an answer ready to hand in my head. And and I, I just want to make sure because I don't know where you're coming from or, or or how you fill up these terms. So I need to try to unpack the terms just a little bit so my answer will make sense. 